Hey everyone, some of you may have heard me mention the Industrial Sewing and Innovation Center. For those of you who haven't, this is something I've been excited about for a while now. I'm a founding board member of a nonprofit that's usually referred to as Isaac, and this spring we opened a beautiful 12,000 square foot factory in Detroit. We jumped straight into producing PPE as a response to the pandemic, and are now finding our role within the broader conversation about American jobs and reshoring apparel production. I'm here with the CEO of Isaac, Jen Garino. Jen, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Christian. I'd like to begin with your background. You didn't start out in the world of production, but you've become a leading advocate for a new way of domestic manufacturing. How did that transition take place? My career in fashion is definitely not a linear one. I started really from the creative side of fashion as an illustrator, actually. And as I did that, I learned to design. So much of my early career was design. I found that to be absent of the connection to the customer. Um, you know, you could design something, but then what happens after it, it leaves your desk and is it successful? Is it not successful? I became more and more fascinated with the process of manufacturing without that a design just stays a design and it never becomes something that's marketable. So over many decades of spending time in probably each part of the spoke of the wheel in fashion, I ended up buying a company in St. Paul, Minnesota, that was a hundred plus year old leather goods company that had its own factory. And it was really there that I began to become really passionate about manufacturing what it takes to manufacture and the people who manufacture. It happened to be at a time where we were growing rapidly and there was not skill to hire. So we reached out to several workforce development agencies and discovered that they could help us sort of find a way to regenerate skill. And it was through that process that we realized that our problem was not singular. It was a lot of companies that were having this issue and that it was going to take a group to sort of look at how you bring skill back into an industry that had been all but dormant for years in the U.S. We started to develop ways to train. And along the way, I became painfully aware of the stigmas attached to manufacturing careers. That's when I really became passionate around how we value those skills. Flash forward a little bit quicker, and I, I met Tom Kartsotis of Shinola, who was launching Shinola brand in Detroit. And he invited me to come down and open up their leather goods manufacturing, design and manufacturing operations. I ended up selling my shares in my company and doing that because I felt like it was an opportunity to expand the work beyond my own little company in St. Paul, but really to do it in a city that really had employment issues and for a brand that was going to be national in stature. So I viewed it as an opportunity to really expand the work. That is really how I came to the point of focusing all my energies on manufacturing and became a real advocate for the need to understand what manufacturing even means. I feel like I've heard you talk quite a bit about this skills gap. Can you talk a little bit more about the experience of trying to hire both in Minnesota and then also in Detroit 
and the perceptions of what it meant to work in a factory versus what you hope it would be to work in a factory? Thank you for asking that question, because as you know very well, Christian, whenever I hear skills gap, it kind of drives me nuts because I don't, I don't think it's a skills gap. It's a values gap. Nobody wants to become or be known for something that somebody doesn't respect. It's that simple. And so how do you bring talent and skill back into an industry if it is a talent and skill that people don't value in our society and our culture? And so I became really interested in how that happened and how do we need to change it? And, you know, I think of it as being out of sight, out of mind. When something's not in front of you, you don't see how it's done. It's only when you see it that you begin to understand and value how it's done. And that's really what's happened with American manufacturing. It goes away. You don't know anybody in manufacturing. You don't have any of your family in manufacturing. You don't even understand what it takes. It just magically shows up on shelves. And so one of the beautiful benefits of working at Shinola was that they really believed in changing that and really highlighting the skill and highlighting the people that make products possible. So as we began to do the work with Isaac, it was paramount that people come first and that one of our first missions beyond what we'll be talking about is that we have to rip apart the stigma that now laces the industry. If you don't give people a good reason to be a part of it, why would they? Why would parents want their kids to be in it? So I think that is at the core of something that has to change. And I I do believe it's beginning to change, but it's plagued the industry for decades. We're going to talk a lot about American manufacturing, and I think it's something that has rightly become Well, I wouldn't say mainstream. It's certainly a topic that we're hearing more about now than we were 10 years ago. Just because something's made in America doesn't mean that it's made in an ethical manner. I I wonder if before we get into Detroit, you could talk a little bit more to the state of American manufacturing right now and the fact that all isn't as good as it could be. One of the best examples of the difference between manufacturing the right way and the wrong way is You know, I I can go into a factory in New York or LA that I went into 30 years ago, and not only have they not changed, but they disintegrated. So you're talking about archaic equipment, you're talking about facilities that really shouldn't ethically be run, and you're talking about a workforce that's not treated well. And, you know, you can go into all the reasons why, which would be a whole nother two hour long conversation. But that's the reality is that the industry stopped investing in itself. And so it aged and became more and more archaic. And I I believe more unethical. And so as we look forward to manufacturing in the the U.S., you know, we use the term right shoring all the time. It's not enough to onshore. You need to right shore it. So what does it look like to build an industry as it could and should be in a way that can be both profitable, but be not just good to people. I don't want it to sound like, you know, this is some kind of philanthropic effort. It's good for business. It's good for people. If it's good for your people, it's good for your business. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. The fashion industry just hasn't had a reason to have to do that. And now I believe that it does. One of the things we think about at Isaac is how do we show that? How do we both support industry and challenge industry to look at the environment they work within and how do they do things like provide their people full medical care? What, what does that look like? What does math look like? 
And so there is a big difference between just manufacturing the U.S. and doing it in a modern, contemporary way that is good to people and doesn't exploit people. Yeah, very well said. The fashion industry is in the middle of what I would consider a generational shift in how it thinks about supply chain and manufacturing. And if that wasn't the case, trying to do what we're doing in Detroit might be a fool's errand. But mm-hmm. what we're doing is so different that it gives us a chance. If you look at American manufacturing in the apparel industry, for the most part, it's dominated by LA and New York. Certainly, there's, there are other regions of the country, the Carolinas, that have a long history of this. But really, right now, those two areas anchor the industry. If things weren't changing, to try to do something outside of those might be difficult. But because we're in the middle of this transition, there's an opportunity for Detroit to step up and really own what the next generation of production looks like. There's this rich history of manufacturing in Detroit, and that's something that sets us up as a city that's known for making things, that's known for being innovative, that's known for being able to lead the charge on thinking differently about production. Well, the fashion industry hasn't exactly been a dominant industry here. you can't separate the fact that Detroit has still had a long legacy of influence in that arena. All of the music that's come out of Detroit was accompanied by decades of influence in fashion. And so I'm really excited to be able to do something that's new to a city, but is also very rooted in the city. I wonder, you mentioned in that last comment about having the right partners at the table. Who are those partners and why have we been able to do that locally in a way that is different than other efforts you've seen to start to bring back manufacturing? I think there's several reasons why Isaac has been able to gain traction and find its role in generating some real change. And I would say that it was really a confluence of events happening at the same time, which you you always have to attribute largely to luck. But beyond that, I think that everybody involved fundamentally was operating from the same ethos, meaning there was no reason why we couldn't make things differently. There was just no reason, in fact, that it was horribly overdue and that it was inevitable. And if that was true, then what a great place to look at it differently. What was San Jose, Cupertino, California 50 years ago? It didn't become Silicon Valley overnight, but it became what it became because it started to attract like-minded people that had an interest in a new way. And we believe that Detroit can be the same for apparel. So if you think about Detroit as the new Silicon Valley for apparel, of course, there's plenty of reasons that it will be different. But fundamentally, the idea that you go to a place because of your understanding about their approach to innovation. And the people that came to the table agreed with that. And that quickly spilled over to an interest in the public sector. So we, we triangulated the interest to include corporations, so private sector, public sector. So you're talking about economic development agencies, the mayor's office, and then academia. How do we train people? Does it always have to be a four-year degree or is there a way to stack towards one or stack towards something that could be equally as beneficial for someone's life? And so those three things connected here. Thankfully, Shinola had already sort of shattered some glass that was making people wonder if we couldn't do things differently. So it, it helped to sort of create an environment where we could 
celebrate what Detroit does really well, which is to innovate and to understand production and logistics. I mean, often we will talk about why, why are brands coming to Detroit and, and really seriously considering being here? If you ask them the same question, they would tell you it's because of that collaboration and coordinated effort that's coming from a common perspective that's, that's supported. And I'd also jump in and say it's industry-led, which is a point that you come back to quite often. American manufacturing is, is not philanthropic and it won't survive on patriotism. This is being driven by the industry and what its needs are. That's not to say that you wouldn't want to create opportunities for the sake of employment, but really what we're talking about here is something that is far more foundational to the success of of an industry. And because of that, I think hopefully becomes a lot more stable. This is long-term something that could become a serious part of Detroit's economy, a Well, yeah. No, that's right. The fact that it's industry-led has real power. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of workforce development agencies across the country. I think Detroit in its own right has like 120 workforce development organizations. But it's very frequent that the way people are trained is missing what industry needs. If you don't have a good relationship with industry, you're not going to get it right. And so being industry-led, coming at it from the other side, realizing that if industry plays a more active and leading role in skill development, then it's going to be good for its own future. So it's going to help to get the talent they need. It's going to generate jobs for sure. And it's going to have longevity. And it's also going to make much better use of dollars invested in workforce development. So economically, it is a much more efficient use of workforce development dollars. Yep. So let's jump into what we're actually doing, right? There are a couple core pieces of our programming. I'd say that in many ways, the apprenticeship is a foundational piece of it. So maybe you can start there and walk through what is Isaac in its current state and what are the things that are going on within the building and what does that involve for the people who are part of the team now? So it, it helps to, I think, start with a visual. So Carhartt built out this beautiful home for Isaac that has a factory in it. We call it a learning factory. Why do we call it a learning factory? Because it hosts ongoing apprenticeship, which is just a long, fancy word for paid training, paid on the tr- job training, which has worked, as we know, very well in European countries such as Germany. This environment usually is reserved for just a pure manufacturing environment. But if you can envision, you know, 12,000 square feet that includes this learning factory, which by the way, is a fully operational contract manufacturing facility and see it next to a classroom where we're teaching certification courses, workshops that are all about ongoing career development in the industry. And then on the other side of this space, you see technology being developed. We have a sonic welding system for masks. We have a circular knitting system. We are working with Siemens and advanced robotics for manufacturers out of Carnegie Mellon to be the case usage case facility for robotics. And then on the other end, there's a cafe 
divided by plants and music. And on the other end is our whole support staff, which is not divided by glass or walls. We all share the same space. So there's this general environment of learning around manufacturing. And the apprenticeship program is one that requires a you know, 200 hour certification on the front of it and end of it, which gives you this foundational understanding of industrial sewing. And then you move from that into an apprenticeship program that works for a year. It is this modularized learning that is industry centric. It is not theoretical. It is on the floor. And it's also not devoid of working with designers and working with technical design, uh, working with equipment technicians, so that you're really immersed in, in what it means to manufacture apparel. Now we do this in a way that is incredibly human centric. And that's a word that is used so often, but the minute you walk into our facility, you feel it. It is a place you want to be. And the second thing you notice, it's young. The people on the factory floor, they're young. They're young and they're excited. If you go into most factory floors, I will tell you the average age is above 50. I've been in a fair number of factories in the U.S. and none of them look like what we have in Detroit. And obviously, you know, that's a clear testament to the support of Carhartt, who has been an incredible partner, but also to thinking about people in a different way in this industry. So you don't invest in skylights and plants and a beautiful facility if you're not also investing in the people. And we talk about sustainability in all kinds of ways, from the materials that we use to the energy sources that we have in the building, but really we're starting with people. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about how we're developing programs and how we think about supporting the people in an industry. If I was to describe, you know, as succinctly as possible, what, what that means, it means that everyone is contributing and everybody's contributions are valued. There is a level of inclusion in activity and thought. So for example, we have employee circles. Um, one of them is our DE&I circle, the diversity, equity, inclusion circle. And for us, DE&I, it's not because the world's talking about that and every corporation's got to have it. It's because we believe that DE&I is an absolute strength. The leaders of those circles are nominated by their coworkers. And ultimately, the methodology, the philosophies around what's important to them are driven from the people that, that are impacted the most by the way we run our company culture. The way that plays out is often surprising. I know that I learn every day, but it's also driven by youth. It's driven by what they want their world to be about. What's important to them? One of our leaders on the DEI committee, he will now be representing his coworkers on the board's DEI committee. So now he has a voice on the board. Those are incredibly, incredibly important things. And the way that ends up manifesting is you see a level of engagement that is far beyond someone clocking in, clocking out. Everybody there knows that while they might be starting on industrial sewing, there is a path for them that mirrors their interest. So for example, one young lady came in as a entry-level sewer. She went through our certification training. We took her off the floor for, oh, let's see, about seven weeks. She got certified and now she's going through the apprenticeship program back on the floor paid. 
We have people that have been promoted into instructor positions, people that have been promoted into technical support positions. So the point being that it is all forward looking. It's all about ceaselessly innovating the industry and people's lives. The way that I like to think of it is in many ways, we're working in the apparel industry, but what we're tackling is what's the future of work in this transition to an automated economy? Because we're a long way from robots making all of our apparel, but we're on the, on the road to having more automation in production. And so how do we teach traditional skills, get production going now, but then create career pathways that aren't dead end at a minimum wage job, but are can start with an apprenticeship in industrial sewing and end up as a technical designer or end up running a factory or end up launching your brand because you've been given the opportunity to learn the skills across all of those pieces and then have a pathway through education and potentially through accredited education to build up along that career. Kristen, Kristen you just beautifully identified the big challenge. How do you make this transition? So often industries will will wait until the writing is on the wall and then we're left with a labor force that has to be retrained. And we think about it as pre-training for what's coming, not waiting to have to retrain. But how do you retrain for the future that's not totally clear? As you said, robotics are on their way. Automation's definitely already here in some respects. So how do you train for what you're not quite sure? How is it going to look? Well, you train on skills that can be used on a lot of different types of equipment in a lot of different settings. And it is the reason why Isaac as an institute can focus on this because manufacturers don't have the time to figure this out. They've got a business to run. As an institute, this can be our every single day commitment, 100% focus on these challenges. So while we train traditional skills, which are, by the way, I think very important, it helps you to understand what you need technology to do for you or what it is doing for you. But technology is so far, far, far away from replacing the human touch. But what human touches is it going to replace first? So we believe that this largely starts by making sure that whoever is industrial sewing is also digitally literate which in the past has never been a thing in the industry. You know, you come in, you learn how to sew and you're expected to be the best sewer, the fastest sewer and retire there. We, we just don't subscribe to that. So, you know, to become digitally lit- literate and to understand how to bridge design to manufacturing, that is where technology is going to make the biggest difference. How do you go from design to the factory floor in a seamless, non-wasteful, accurate and quality way. How do you do that? So a lot of work is being done on this sort of 3D PD, 3D product development. You know, there's only three to 5% of global companies are even using 3D PD. I mean, that's nuts. There's industry that went that route 15 years ago, 20 years ago, even. So if that is the opportunity, then all of a sudden you're starting to train for someone who understands design to manufacturing, not just manufacturing, not just design, but the whole process. And that person will be better prepared for the future of manufacturing. And it also leads to greater job satisfaction and much better career potential. 
Yep. And I would add, it's not just learning design and manufacturing, but then as supply chains become more agile, as it becomes more important to manage inventory and to respond quickly to demand, they're also learning from production all the way through to the end consumer. As we look at our role as a manufacturer, it's not to make as many products at a high volume and a low price point as possible. It's to set up a far more responsive and agile supply chain that reduces waste, that allows us to deliver what the customer wants when they want it. And so I think you're seeing across the entire team of Isaac, a much more robust understanding of the whole process of making and selling a garment, which who knows where the team members will end up, but I'm sure it's going to be a far more diverse experience and set of careers than it would have been if they just came in and learned how to sew and said, put this pocket on this pair of pants for the next 20 years. Absolutely. The diversity of their career paths will be so broad, which is a success in its own right. And I think you you really, really help to explain the broader landscape of how we design, deliver apparel and how we manage the whole supply chain all the way back to where do the materials come from? How do we limit ourselves from over-purchasing, purchasing the wrong things, getting the consumer a more right piece of apparel to them on time. All those things use different sets of skills and they aren't siloed anymore. They are talking to the factory floor. They are talking to the designers. There's no way you can speed up that whole process and reduce waste unless all those functions are deeply connected. One of the things that we are doing, which is very, very unusual, we've been fully operational for about seven months now in terms of our facility being up and running. And we made a decision to invest heavily in an ERP system and shop floor system. Typically, you would not do this at the stage that we are. We're not manufacturing that much yet. We had you know, over a million dollars worth of production this last year in six months, which is amazing considering we did this during a pandemic. But nonetheless, just to point out that the size of our company is not big enough to really justify doing that quite yet. However, We know that doing it now is the right time. So everybody can know how do you implement that, learn how it touches all points of your business, and then design into that technology so that you're not having to cram what you do into technology, but actually design into it so it can work like you need it to work for you. That's a very unusually early approach to this. Just a quick point here. I think it'd be helpful to understand for someone that's not coming out of production what that is and why it's important for us to have that in place now. Yeah, so it's an an enterprise resource planning system and it does everything from taking it in order all the way to shipping it to the consumer, okay? But there's a lot of different ways that can happen and there's a lot of different ways that you plan for that. So depending on how robust that system is, it means that if I get an order in, I can look out to see what kind of fabric I have, look to the factory floor and see that, oh, I've got a window on Thursday where I can kick out this on-demand order of 50 t-shirts and the system can turn around and quote this three days. It, it flows all the way through the system. It helps you to manage your supply chain. So instead of designing and then going out to find your supply, perhaps you have a library of supply that you buy and you have designers design within so that you're not strangulating yourself by too much material inventory. You design within that. So you become very efficient, very cost efficient. And now you're designing, you're developing something. And this ERP system is built in a way that it can use a platform to deliver the information all the way to the first operator on the floor. Yep. And all this stuff sounds like common sense, but it's not actually 
common practice in many businesses, whether it's in the US or across the world. It's been interesting to watch, and, and maybe we'll step out of Isaac for a second, just been interesting to watch us and the industry at large try to catch up to the way that the customer's expectation has changed, the way that brands' needs have changed, but the way that supply chain hasn't. And I think that's a lot of what we're trying to do, which is the system of production that's been dominant for the past, let's say, 30 years since offshoring really took off in late 80s, early 90s. It's been built for a very different supply chain. And what we're doing is, I think, the next generation of that, which is starting to apply some of these best practices from other industries in terms of material planning, production, what you were just talking about. Let's go back to April when we were in the very early stages of this COVID-19 pandemic. It was not a time that there was a huge demand for apparel manufacturing. But since then, we've opened a factory, grown the team to 30 employees, switched the category we were producing in, the customers we were selling to, and played a role not just in producing PPE you know, within our own factory, but also helping to develop an ecosystem of other facilities locally who are a part of this alliance. So can you just give a little bit of overview of how crazy the past seven months have been <laughs> and what that was like? I watched from afar as you and the team worked every day to deliver products that were vital to the workers that are on the front lines. But what went on behind the scenes in that, <laughs> in that stretch? Well, just to set the stage a bit, we were within a couple of weeks of planning our launch party and moving in. And, you know, our focus was very, very, very different when COVID hit. At that time, we, you know, nobody had any idea how long COVID was going to last, how extreme it was going to be. But we knew it was, it was serious. And we paused and said, you know, regardless of whether there was any apparel to make out there, was it the right use of our resources during this time? And we realized that we had the resources and the expertise and the support to perhaps deploy them towards a desperately needed product. And so we went to the state and to the city, and then we went to a medical center here in Detroit to help us develop a gown. The demand was so high that there was no way we were going to be able to fill it alone. But something that had happened over the past three years is we had developed an incredible network of people in the industry and developed deep relationships. So we called all these companies that had varying sizes of cut and sew businesses. And of course, they were thrilled to do it because their businesses were shuttered in a couple of cases looking at closure, permanent closure. So we went and bulk purchased material, which in itself was trying to learn the medical industry in two weeks, understanding what kind of material you need. Um, where to get it from during a time where there was just this global scavenger hunt for the right materials. And when you found it, you just had to put cash on the table and buy it right away. This was the environment we were walking into. So we committed to taking the lead on that, mitigating the risk that small companies would be exposing themselves to if they tried to do it themselves. We bought the material, we cut the material, we kit the material, we distributed it to 12 to 15 companies. And we manufactured for the state and medical centers. It was just crazy. The need was so high and we had never made medical gowns before. But again, as an institute, we were in a position to be an agnostic or shall we say unbiased, non-profiteering organization to lead the charge. 
And so we successfully did that, um, not without a lot of pain. It was really, really hard. I mean, we were working seven days a week for nearly five months. And it developed even deeper relationships. We now have an industry council in Michigan that works very closely together on initiatives. We deepened our equipment partnerships. And now we're in a position where we have a whole incredibly trained staff because they were sewing the same thing over and over and over again for months. Um, But what a great thing to train on at the beginning. So it actually, by default, became an incredible training mechanism. But it was fast and furious. And Kristen, I know you and I had many, shall we say, situation room phone calls at 10 o'clock at night with people all over the country trying to figure out what to do about it. I don't think there will be that many moments in a career where there is that much need and that much, not misinformation, but just a lack of information, right? Where the infrastructure wasn't there that needed to be there. It speaks to the vulnerability that comes when you don't know how to produce things. Oh my goodness, yes. It pulled back the wizard's curtain and it was like, oh my gosh, what's going on behind there? Well, we don't know how to make this stuff in the United States. That's what's happening. So so in a way, we were beautifully positioned to respond, number one, but B, to say, see, we told you, (laughs) having some control over your supply chain is critical. You know, it's critical. And yes, this is the extreme of that because it's about people's lives and their health, but it's critical period. And you are exposing your society to all sorts of risks when you don't know how to make things anymore. Yeah. And in the case of PPE, I think that was, as you mentioned, just amplified. I still think there's a reckoning about it. Obviously, we're still in the the moment in the heart of a crisis. Um, But more broadly, the vulnerability of relying on foreign supply for vital life-saving materials is something that I think the country we really need to wrestle with. And I'll be curious to see what happens politically about that. A lot of what I was doing during that time was just helping work with factory after factory after factory around the country who said, what can we do? How can we help? Who went out on a limb and bought equipment who went out on a limb and bought material. One of the things that was really disappointing for me is how quickly the support for that disappeared. So you have people who are putting their businesses and their lives on the line. And then as soon as we got access to cheap product again, coming in from out of the country, a lot of the orders were canceled. It dried up overnight. Isaac, as well as so many other factors that I talked to, went through that roller coaster ride of it's vital. We can't pay for it. It's vital. We can't pay for it at a time when there was still clearly a need and there was a willingness for people to go to work. It's unfortunate and it is going to take advocacy and I believe legislation to get serious about it because we we saw a mad dash to domestic needs. And then as soon as the international supply chain went up again and there was importing available, of course, all we heard was you're too expensive. I should say that we're not purists. We're not saying that everything needs to be made in the United States. That's just not what we're saying. We believe in sort of a progressive good approach to changing the industry. But the idea that you wouldn't at least find a way to produce 30% of your PPE here, regardless of what you pay for it, economically, it's an economic driver. And like you said, it mitigates national risk. But I I think we're going to see some changes there. I really do, because this is going to be the last time this kind of thing goes down. No, I I completely agree. And I think we've talked to individual politicians who are certainly trying to figure out a way to support it. It feels like something that is a bipartisan need that drives 
as you said, economic growth. It supports national security. And I think it, it also is an amplified case of looking at total cost of ownership instead of just the price of a single unit of inventory. I hope that at a policy level, we're able to make that argument for why a cheap price doesn't necessarily mean it's the lowest cost option. That's right. It turns out that cheap is very expensive just in other ways. Yep. So I want to wrap up here with a few points. Everything so far that we've talked about has really been inside of Detroit and inside of, of Isaac. We're anchored in Detroit, but we're, we're really looking at ways that we can be a resource across the country. Yes. As a national institute, as you say, our home is Detroit, but our efforts are nationwide. And as a new institute, they're limited, but they're growing. One of the areas that we've worked beyond Michigan is with the CFDA, the Council of Fashion Designers of America. They have doubled down on their commitment to supporting manufacturing in the United States. And so we've worked on projects with them. We've worked on projects with them in the New York Economic Development Corporation. We have installed some of our curriculum, uh, parts of it all over the country in North Carolina, Nashville, Seattle. And then we will be producing for global and American brands. We're set up to manufacture now, but we're committed to finding brands that believe in sustainability because we, we don't want to be just producing just to produce either. We don't believe that if you have a sustainable product that still relies on unsustainable lives, that you can rightfully call that a sustainable product. So we come at it from the sustainability of lives standpoint. And what we're finding is that there's brands that are really interested in aligning with a company like ours or a nonprofit like ours. So there's one piece that we haven't touched on that I think has been foundational from the very beginning. It's about the idea of equity and employee ownership. So we've been looking at how you can develop this industry from a ground up grassroots approach, but also with partners like Carhartt, like the Council of Fashion Designers of America, like the mayor's office. Um, and as we work to develop this industry and to create opportunity, one of the things that said from the very beginning is that people who are doing the work and who are on the team need to share in the benefits and the equity of that growth. So can you talk a little bit about what the next phase might look like for the manufacturing facility that we're developing? Yes, I'm so happy to talk about employee equity. This is such a critical part of our long-term vision. So within the next 18 to 24 months, we will be opening a worker-owned for-profit satellite facility. What this means is the people that are working there and will be part owners in it, they will have a voice in how they want that company to treat its workers and how to run the company. They will be the stakeholders. There'll be room for social impact investment in it as minority partners, but the employees will be the majority partners. And it is an opportunity to say, okay, we're going to play a big role in changing this industry, but we don't want to be the only people to benefit from that. We want the people that are making the product to benefit from that. You know, you come in through the Isaac Institute, you get trained, you work there for a couple of years, and then you have this opportunity to become an owner. And for sure in Detroit, this is an opportunity that the largely African-American community here does not get very often. It just does not get the opportunity to have equity. At our core, we believe that workers just have to have more equity in not just the growth, but the redefinition of our industry. 
as you look at the fashion industry globally, it's not like there's not money being made. You hear brands complain over and over again about how they can't afford to pay more for products. You hear stories from both workers and factories about getting squeezed, losing huge orders for a penny a piece. And it's been essentially how much can the owners of large corporations squeeze out of the people that make the product? Yes. And they, ha they haven't been able to benefit in an industry that still creates a tremendous amount of wealth. So this feels like a, a really important step towards saying this is a fundamental shift. This is not just using technology to produce here. This is saying the way that the profits from this industry get distributed need to reflect the contributions that are made at every level, which is a conversation that I think America is hopefully starting to have across every industry, not just apparel. I think that's right. And the other thing that happens by default when you do that is you are now engaging the employee owners on learning the whole business. And what does that lead to? That often leads to people starting their own businesses. If I go back again to how I started this business, I had the benefit of working for many a business owner that continued to teach me the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, until I eventually bought my own company. Yep. And the communities yep. that we're looking to serve do not get those opportunities. And there's no reason why they shouldn't. Jen, how can listeners support Isaac? What does the organization need to continue to grow and develop the work that it's doing? The way we can continue to grow the work we're doing is really with substantial financial support. So to come in and help us to pay for apprenticeships, for example, we give them full benefits. So that's in excess of $40,000 a year to support an apprentice. The other thing is technology. So to buy advanced technology, you know, we need hundreds and thousands of dollars for that. We also need money to support our manufacturing. So if we are supporting the manufacturing of sustainable materials, we have to buy that material. We have to source that material. And that, like anything, is a strain on cash flow. So we need operating support for that. All to say that we need some substantial core support that can help us continue to say yes to the opportunities we have ahead of us. There's more than we can say yes to right now. And that's just purely a function of limited resources. Jen, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure as always. I look forward to touching base again and giving an update on some of the work that Isaac does over the next year. But in the meantime, I can't thank you enough for all the leadership you've shown in this organization. Thank you, Christian. It's been such a joy to work together and more to come, right?